Thank you, Pastor Chad. I, I want to say, well, pardon the interference there. must be a truck going by with the CB or something. But anyway, these, these um, cordless microphones and things are wonderful tools, but sometimes they're just tools and they have uh, uh, problems that occur there. But anyway, thank you, brother. I, I want to just, before I get into the message, say a word of, of appreciation and thanks to... Uh, Brother Nathan, for bringing a wonderful message last Sunday and, and wrapping up the book of Galatians in such an elegant way, and it meant so much to hear that. And, and you know, Cornerstone, we are so blessed. I, I am so blessed as senior pastor here at Cornerstone to have a, a group of, of godly, uh, gifted young men who are trained in the Scriptures And I think about Brother Nathan, I think also about Brother Mark Andrews and Richard Stovall, Pastor Chad, Pastor Tim. Uh, These men just, uh, they inspire me. Sometimes it's good for an old dog to run with the puppies because, you know, it kind of rejuvenates you, you know, and stirs your heart a little bit. But these young men encourage me and they inspire me. Folks, whether you realize it or not, these men take the Word of God very, very seriously. And I promise you, when when any of them are standing behind this sacred desk, I assure you they have given a lot of prayer and a lot of preparation to the message that you hear. And if you are wanting to grow in the Word of God, and you're wanting to mature in Christ-likeness, then you just come with your Bible and a notepad and an open heart and mind, because I promise you, you're going to get fed. You're going to get fed the Word of God. So I appreciate these young men. I want them to know that, and I appreciate so much. As we continue to look at history, that's what the book of Acts is. And, and someone aptly said, history is His story. Because unveiled before us and unveiled before us on the pages of the Word of God is the story of God dealing with humanity. From the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It's a beautiful story. It's a dramatic story. Whoever said the Bible was boring hasn't read the Bible. Uh, on Wednesday mornings, and if you're available on Wednesday mornings at 10.30, you come and join us. The Cornerstone Companions meet, and we have a Bible study. But we're, we're watching the History Channel uh, movie, The Bible, that came out on television uh, about a couple, three months ago. And, and we've got a copy of that. And so we're just taking segments and watching. And I'm going to tell you, it just stirs my heart. To see God's story revealed in the Holy Scriptures, unveiled on that screen, and you can just visualize the power and the majesty of God. So if you want to come and walk through that, that uh, uh, movie presentation with us, and we, then we, we have Bible discussion related to what we see, you're welcome to come. In chapter 3, as we are embarking upon the story of the church, uh, revealed to us in the book of Acts. And I shared in the opening message that, that this is the uh, recording of, of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke uh, by trade a physician, a very meticulous man. Uh, he understood details. Uh, he saw and, and was inspired by the Spirit of God to write in detail how the Word of God was, was brought forth, but also how the Spirit of God worked in that early church. And so we're, we're looking at our ancestors. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm interested and curious about, you know, where I came from. And I promise you it wasn't a monkey hanging from a tree. 
though some of you say, well, you kind of look like, no, but anyway, the fact is, you know, I know that I'm created in the image of God. I, I, I want to know about my ancestors. But folks, as the church, we're learning about our ancestors. We're learning about the birth of the church recorded so accurately here in the book of Acts. And so as Pastor Chad has read, you know, we're looking at verse, uh, chapter three today. But let me just say, question is often posed. Do miracles of healing still happen in the 21st century? Do miracles of healing still happen in the 21st century? Now, I believe that nothing, few things mystify and intrigue Christians and sometimes non-Christians more than the subject of healing. I personally believe that yes, indeed, God is still in the healing business. Over the years that I've been privileged to serve as pastor and, and ministering to a number of people, I can't tell you the times that I as a pastor have witnessed what I consider to be divine works of God in healing those who are sick. In fact, we've got miracles sitting right here in our midst. I won't embarrass her, but Sister Dean Cochran would readily stand up and testify about how God worked when she had a brain aneurysm and, and her family, Brother Dennis and Suzanne and, and her church family gathered around her there at the hospital while she was in intensive care. And we saw, didn't we, Sister Dean, Brother Dennis, the hand of God as He worked in response to the humble, faithful prayers of His people that God would do a miracle of healing in her life and praise the Lord. He did. But she's just one of many instances that we have in our midst today. Some of you have experienced the healing touch of God upon your lives. You know, God's Word doesn't leave us in the dark on that subject. In fact, He gives us instructions about healing. If, if you'll turn in your, your Bibles, if you have the book of... Uh, hold your place in Acts and turn back to James. And I'll direct your attention to James chapter 5, verse 13. And this is good to remember, ladies and gentlemen. Because God is still interested in bringing healing to His people. In James chapter 5, verse 13, He asks the question, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. That would be pastors. And let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. And I would emphasize the importance of stressing that it is the faith that you pray with. That person who is sick, they would be praying if they're able to. But the prayers of the elders aren't magic. It's no potion. The presence of the elders are simply as the spiritual leaders are there to reinforce that brother or sister who's sick. Because it's really their faith that heals. It is their faith in God, if it's God's will, that He would heal them. And so the oil, again, is a symbol. It's a symbolic representation of the presence of the Spirit of God. Because it's the work of the Spirit of God in response to the humble prayers of the people of God by the power of God that brings healing when it is God's will. Now, in contrast, I would say this, brothers and sisters, be warned. Because the same Bible gives warnings to those of us who are the body of Christ, those of us who are Christians, 
Not to be deceived by those who claim to have some special anointing of healing that they themselves as an instrument can impart to you or to me in healing. You know, Jesus gave a warning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In 1 John chapter 1, uh, chapter 4 verse 1, John the Apostle warns the early church, test all spirits, not everyone claiming to be of God and even doing signs in the name of the Lord are of God. And so I say that because there are many who pose in positions out there who claim that they have dynamic God-given spiritual anointing. But I want you to understand from the scripture, that's contradictory to the teaching of the word of God. Pastor, teacher, writer, and recognized Bible scholar, Dr. John MacArthur, speaking about this, asserts that according to the Scriptures, the so-called sign gifts, the gifts particularly of, of healing, as, as just one, for instance, the miracle healing, were given during the apostolic period of the church. That period that we're looking at right now. They were given by God to the apostles and those close associates of those early apostles during the early formative years of the church. And they were given for a specific purpose. They were given to give credence to the message of the gospel, verification and accreditation to the early Christian movement. Those sign gifts such as miraculous healing and, and the apostles possessing the power given to them by God to heal other people was given to give veracity to the message of the gospel and validity to the early church. According to Dr. MacArthur, and I quote, such miraculous accreditation is no longer needed. Why? Because we have all the proof we need. It's right here. It's the Bible. Complete. Unfortunately, he goes on to say, there is much confusion about that gift, talking about faith healers. Many today claim to possess or have access to that gift. Their so-called healings run the gamut from psychological ploys to outright fakes to demonic activity. Realize that you and I need to be very discerning and very careful about coming under the, the, the teachings and the movement and the, and the workings of those who would make such claims. But now, now, I want to turn your attention to a bona fide, biblical, faith healer and a genuine miracle of healing. You heard Pastor Chad as he read that chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And, and, and what we see there is Peter and John, remember the church is just getting started. Peter has preached that great and powerful message on the day of Pentecost. And we saw as a result of that, some 3,000 were added to the number of the church. And now they're going to the temple as was the practice of the early church and the early Christians. They went banned from the temple, and so we see Peter and John going about the third hour, which would be, or the ninth hour, which would be about three o'clock in the afternoon. This was the appointed time that the Jews gathered in the temple to offer prayers, to offer sacrifices. 
And so they were on their way to the temple. And I want you to see as we look at this passage here that they encountered a hopeless and an invalid man. First of all, we're going to look at the miracle. And it was. There's no denying that this was a divine work of God for a very specific purpose for the benefit of the early church. Oh, make no mistake about it. The lame man benefited from the, from the miracle, but the church ultimately would and God would be glorified. We see God, His sovereign power is orchestrating this miraculous sign here. And so we see this man in verse 2, a certain man, doesn't even give his name. From his, a lame from his mother's womb. In other words, this was not an accident. This was not something he recently came down with. This was a, a, a malady and a disability that had been affecting him from the time he was born. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. And I think it's interesting. The contrast. Here they take a man whose body is broken and invalid and disabled and they lay him before one of the most popular gates into the sanctuary, the temple called the, the, the beautiful gate. Some scholars have speculated it was a massive gate that took about 20 men to be able to close it. It was a heavy gate. Uh, it was, it was uh, covered in, in, in uh, bronze and trimmed in gold and silver. And so it was a beautiful place. A lot of people came through it, and that's a popular place for beggars to go. This wasn't the only beggar. He was one of many. They realized that as the people were coming to worship, this would be an excellent time to beg, to, to seek alms. And it was a part of the worship experience. People coming to the temple, certainly to make their offerings, would also carry along some money, some change, that they would give to these who were crippled or, or whatever that needed help, poor. And so he was begging alms. And so we see in verse 3, he says, He who, this lame man, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple. And I think it's interesting. A lot of times when you hear Peter in those early days of the church, even in Christ's ministry, remember the inner circle of three? Peter, James, and John. Well, James is not in the picture here, but there's Peter and John. And as we continue on for the early chapters of Acts, you'll see Peter and John are together. God used them together. It was as if they encouraged each other, they worked together, God blessed their ministry together. So he, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. You know, one one uh, commentary was expressing maybe how that looked. The, the, the man was laying there on his mat. He was, of course, crippled. And, and he's so used to day after day after day after day, throngs of people coming by him, and he's just going through the motion. He's probably got it down to like a, like a ritual, you know? And he, he, he sees Peter and John, but then he doesn't see. He just notices them coming his way. And so he just automatically just starts begging them. And, and, you know, typically the worshipers coming into the temple, they would see that they were used to the beggars, like most of you are used to people standing at the intersections with signs, we'll work for food or, or whatever, or help, I need help or whatever. So we're used to that. Well, so were the worshipers then. And many of the worshipers coming in would even look. They would even look down at the, at the beggar. They had their change. It was a ritual. They'd just flip some coins over and keep going. It was different this day. It was different. Why? Because God had a plan. And so we see this, this man, this crippled man, and it says that he saw Peter and John about to go into it, and he asked for alms. And in verse 4, And fixing his eyes on him with John, 
Peter said, look at us. I dare say this was probably a rare occasion for this man. He rarely had any worshipers take an interest in him personally, much less say, hey, look at us. Don't just glance our way. Look, lock your eyes in on us. And yeah, the interesting thing is, this lame man, this hopelessly crippled man from birth, was not, he didn't go to the temple that day looking for a miracle. He wasn't chasing after faith healers. He was just looking for handouts. And Peter and John, the same thing. As they were going to the temple, I don't think they started out that day thinking, let's go see if we can heal somebody today. They were going to the temple to pray, to worship, and to witness to the Jews who would be assembled there. So we see sovereign God about to orchestrate a miraculous sign, and we see His faithful disciples, Peter and John, Recognize, Folks, this is why it's so important that you and I walk in the Spirit of God. Because you see, God is always at work around us. The problem is, so many times we miss opportunities for God to use us. Not Peter and John. As they were going into that temple gate, I believe the Spirit of God impressed upon them simultaneously. Stop. God wants to do something here today. God wants to intervene in a life. God wants to demonstrate His power and His majesty. And so, from that point on, it was God working in them. You know, I think it's interesting that Peter and John didn't set up a tent outside of the temple, put a big sign over it, Peter and John's faith healing. You know, and, and, and milking people for money so that they can live a, 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 an exorbitant lifestyle like, and, and be filthy rich like some of the so-called faith healers today. No, no, that's not it at all. They were wanting the attention not pointed to them. But they wanted to make sure that the attention went to the very one who received the credit. And they were going to promote Jesus Christ. And that's what it was. So as we go, as we look there, and it says, and fixing his eyes on him with John and Peter, Peter said, look at us. Verse five. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took up took him up by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. This was not a gradual hearing, uh, uh, healing. This wasn't a case where the man had to kind of get up and say, I think, I think I feel some, I, I think I can, here, hold me somebody. Immediately it says, God touched this man and immediately for the first time, imagine, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. What must it have been like? For the first time, for somebody to reach down and to grab you up with the certainty that says, you're going to walk today, mister. And all of a sudden, feeling the, the bones in his ankle began to strengthen. Oh, listen. This helpless, hopeless, invalid man suddenly was transformed. I'm not just talking about in the fact that he received his ability to stand and walk. But he was transformed. Because what good was he before? Really? Most people wrote him off as a liability. Kind of like people do today. If you're not able to produce and be productive, then in the eyes of a secular humanistic society, you're not of much value. 
That's why it scares me to death. We're, we're very apt as, as a, a, a culture and a society to kill innocent babies in the womb of their mother. Listen, those of us that are getting older, we might want to pay attention because it won't be long. They'll be killing senior adults who are not, quote, productive, called euthanasia. But that's another subject and another message at another time. But I believe God was wanting to show us something. Let's take a look here. In verse 7, And He took Him up by the right hand and lifted Him up, and immediately His feet and ankle bones received strength. So He... He, speaking of this once lame man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them walking, leaping and praising God and all the people, not some of the people, but all the people saw him what? Walking, saw him what? Praising God. Do you understand that if you had physical affirmities or disabilities, you were not allowed into the sacred part of the temple, the inner sanctum, whereby you could worship God because you were considered unclean. Do you understand for the first time this man created in the image of God, created for the purpose of worshiping God, could now find... How many times do you think he sat at the gate of, called beautiful and just yearned? Oh, if I could just go in there. If I could just be a part of the worship. If I could just engage in praising God. Something we take for granted. Something that Christians today can come up with all kinds of flimsy excuses why they shouldn't go to church and worship God. And yet here was a man who was dying inside to go. And suddenly God gave him back the ability to walk. He was a whole man. He was a healed man. He was a man who was now given the capacity to do what he was created to do. And that is go before God and worship. Oh, listen, you think about somebody praising the Lord. I don't think he was worried if they were First Baptist or formal or whatever. I don't think you could have kept that dude quiet in the sanctuary that day when he was shouting and praising God and giving glory to God for the power that he had experienced. You know, I think God was teaching a lesson through this man. I believe that God wanted the nation of Israel, the Jews, to see that just as they saw a miracle happen in a hopeless invalid man that they as a people as a nation were just as hopeless and just as invalid that's right you see Israel was crippled by her unbelief and rebellion understand the history of the people of God the Jews all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 God chose one man Abraham and he said Abraham I'm going to call you out of your homeland to a land you've never seen. But Abraham, that's just the beginning because, you see, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. That's right, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to make a great nation of you and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And he said, Abraham, everyone that blesses you, I'll bless. Everyone who curses you, I will curse. And listen to what else he said. And he said, Abraham, through you, through your generations, I, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now I ask you, knowing what you know of the Jews in the time of Christ, at the time of the early beginning of the church, they were not doing that. They were not blessing God. They were not drawing the nations to God. They had a faulty religious system that was steeped in, in human pride and they were doing everything but bringing people to Jehovah God. 
They were crippled by their unbelief. They were crippled by their, their rebellious attitude towards God. And I believe God wanted the nation of Israel to see through this powerful miracle that nobody could deny. If I can raise up a lame man, an invalid man, a hopeless man, I can surely raise up a nation that is invalid and crippled. There's word for the church today because I believe a large segment of the body of Christ today is deeply disabled. By compromise with a pagan culture, with rebellious attitudes towards God, with unrepentant sin. Oh, listen, the church has a high and mighty calling, does it not? When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations... Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Listen, that's a high and mighty calling that God has placed upon the church today. But I'm afraid to say today, ladies and gentlemen, that far too many churches are more interested in their own comfort and in their own pleasure and in their own buildings and their emphasis of pride that they're more concerned about themselves than they are about being the people of God. In many instances across this land, there are churches that are also invalid and crippled. And God has a lesson right here in the Scriptures to say, there's hope. As we move further in chapter 3 and verse 12, we move from the miracle itself to, to focusing upon the Messiah because that's exactly what Peter is about to do. Just picture them on a porch there in the temple complex called Solomon's Porch, if you will. I don't know if it had a swing on it or what, but it was a porch. It was a place where people gathered as they would leave from the sanctuary and they would sit and discuss things. Well, there's Peter and John, and guess who's hanging on to them? Like a tick on a dog. Sorry if I offend anybody, but I mean, they couldn't shed this lame man? Are you kidding me? These guys have given me, God has used these guys to give me life again. Are you kidding me? They're, he's hanging on to them. Hey, look at my buddies over here. Praise God for these two guys. And so the crowd is drawing around. Got an automatic crowd. The whole throng is gathered. They witness this thing. Peter, verse 12. So when Peter saw it, what did he see? He saw a throng of people gathered around who were absolutely amazed. And he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, speaking of John and himself, as though by our power or godliness we had made this man walk? You see, this is what differentiates Peter and John and the apostles as they heal people from the so-called faith healers of today. They didn't want the attention. They didn't want people thronging to them as if they possessed some magical power. They said, don't don't marvel that that God has used us. It's not us. It's not us that has made this man walk. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, when he said that, the Jews, immediately their antennas went up. They said, he's talking about our God. God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. Oh, yeah. He's talking about, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now look at the paradoxes that come in this string of descriptions of Jesus. Because it hasn't been long, folks. It's only been a matter of weeks since the same throng of Jews 
with their leaders at the helm, manipulating the political leaders of that day, had Jesus crucified. And Peter was seizing upon that to make them understand that this Jesus whom you crucified, He was a whole lot more than just an average Joe. He says, you delivered Him up and denied in the presence of, of Pilate when he was determined to let Him go. Look at the paradox. Pilate was willing to let Jesus go. He realized he was innocent. The Jews, God's people, oh no, 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 crucify Him, crucify Him. Look at the paradox, the contrast. And he goes on to say, but you denied the Holy One in verse 14 and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now, isn't that interesting? What a contrast. Here is a man who is perfectly just, Jesus, who is perfectly God, you know, godly, who is perfect, perfect. And it says that you have denied the Holy One. And what do they ask for? When given the opportunity for a substitute instead of Jesus, they said, give us Barabbas. Folks, Barabbas was not a misguided boy scout, just happened to get into a little bit of trouble. He was a killer. He was a murderer. The people knew that. This is how distorted the people of God were. They said, don't give us Jesus. Crucify him. Oh, we'll take that murderer. Let him go. Do you see how blind in sin is? And Peter is saying, don't you get it? Can't you see? Well, then he goes home. In verse 15, And you kill the prince of life. Whom God raised from the dead. He said, listen, the very one that God has sent into the world to give life, you killed him. You have his blood on your hands. You think he's getting their attention by now? Whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him, speaking of Jesus, has given Him, the lame man, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter says, it's not John. It's not me. It's the Jesus that you had a hand in crucifying. It's the very Messiah that you rejected. He's still alive. God raised Him from the dead. And God is using Him now to work this miracle of healing. You see... God in His wonderful love and mercy, Israel's God had faithfully sent His own Son, the Messiah, to come into the world to give redemption. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, John tells us, in this the love of God was manifested or has been manifested towards us in that He has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. God didn't have to do that. It was by His grace that He chose to send His own Son, knowing that He would be subjected to what He was subjected to. And you know, Peter makes a point of saying this. He said it in the sermon after, at Pentecost there in chapter 2. He made a point of talking about how God glorified His Son. If I can just take you back quickly to chapter 2, verse 23. He says, Peter was preaching in that other message, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. But look at verse 24. Whom God raised up 
having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he said, the very Jesus you crucified, you buried, God is raised up. But he went on further than that. In chapter that same chapter, verse 32, this Jesus God is raised up of which we were all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter said at the Pentecost message, he says, what you're seeing, the powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the result of the Jesus that you crucified. He's not dead. He's not in a grave. God has raised Him up. Not only that, God hasn't just raised him up and brought him to heaven. He has exalted him to the most exalted position anybody in all of creation could possibly hope to have. And that is to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. In Philippians in chapter 2 verse 9 through 11 it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, talking of Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus. Every, every knee. And when it says in the Greek, every, it means all. Every knee shall bow. Those in heaven, think about it. Those on the earth, think about it. And even those under the earth. Every knee will bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter is saying here, this Jesus that you thought you were done with, rid of, guess what? He's alive. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's coming back and He has healed this helpless and invalid man to demonstrate to you that He is alive and working in the world today. And you best understand that. The people of God responded shamefully to God's precious darling Son as the... Readers, Matt, Pastor Chad read responsively out of Matt, out of Isaiah 53, where it talks about, we rejected him, we despised him, rejected him, couldn't even look at him. And Jesus, Peter says, is exalted. They rejected God's Messiah. Now Peter's going somewhere with this, hang in there. Because listen, rejecting God's Messiah, is dangerous business. Hold your place there. I want you to see a passage over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Rejecting God's Messiah is dangerous, dangerous business. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, in verse 28, he says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law talking about the Jews, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. As a practicing Jew, you violate the law, and there are two witnesses, they'll kill you. Death sentence. But he goes on to say, in verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which He has sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. Peter says, if you think it was bad for somebody that broke the law of Moses, he says, how much worse is it going to be for those who have rejected the very Son of God? Evangelist Greg Laurie said, one of the most dangerous places in the world for a lost person to be 
is in a Bible teaching, gospel preaching church. Because once you hear, God holds you accountable. And you think about the countless millions of people who have sat dumb-faced in front of their television pro, uh, show, uh, screens and watched Billy Graham, heard Billy Graham preach the gospel and then flip the TV off, say a curse word, down a few beers and go on about their life. Thinking there's no consequences. If those Christians want that, that's fine. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, once you've heard the gospel, once you've heard the name of Jesus Christ, once you've heard of God's divine redemptive plan, listen, one day, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ and His precious blood covers your soul, let me tell you something, you'll stand before the Father. You'll stand before the very one who watched His Son die in agony on that cross. And you will have to give account. You will suffer a punishment that is far, far greater than physical death itself. I believe Peter's got their attention now. So we move from the Messiah to bringing the message home. And I know some of you are thinking, please, preacher, bring it home now. Bring it home. We are. We're headed down the home stretch. Okay? Verse 19. Because the message is simple. It's really a simple message. It's a timeless message. The message is the same message that that Peter preaches here. That that John the Baptist started his ministry preaching. That Jesus began his earthly ministry preaching. Repent! For the kingdom of God is at hand. This is not a New Testament principle in and of itself. You go back in the Old Testament and you'll find where the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 8 and Ezekiel chapter 14, they were saying to the nation of Israel, Repent! Repent! And of course the nation didn't repent and they suffered. But all the way to the book of Revelation in chapter 3, verse 3, when Jesus is speaking through John in that powerful revelation, and He's talking to the, the dead church at Sardis there. He says in verse 3 of Re- Revelation 3, Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. And how does Peter start out the rest of his message there in verse 19? He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. In other words, wiped out. Aren't you glad that when you prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that He forgave you? He forgave you of your past sins, your present sins, and all the future sins. Once you're covered under the blood of Jesus Christ, praise God. Jesus says, those that the Father gives under my hand, no one, no one, no how shall ever snatch them out of my hands. You're gloriously, wonderfully, eternally saved by the blood of Jesus. Could have given me about there. And that's the truth. And so Peter's preaching this message. Repent. You know, God calls sinners to repent. And that word repent, this is as if you're driving down the road and somebody riding with you asks you to turn. What are they asking you to do? They're asking you to change directions. They're asking you or telling you to take a U-turn. In other words, instead of going in that direction, and, and spiritually, when we talk about repent, God is calling on you and me to to change our directions and turn around and to lead, turn around from something, and that is ourself and our sins and our sinful habits, turn your back on them. We saw in that powerful movie when Lot and his family were fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You know, I've read that story a lot of times, but when you see Hollywood's rendition of somebody turning into a pillar of salt, that kind of gets your attention. How many times did the angels say as they were delivering Lot and his family from Sodom and the fire and brimstone was falling down upon that, that ill-fated city? What did they say? Don't look back! Don't look back! And I'm screaming almost inside at Lot's wife because I know what she's going to do. I'm saying, woman, what part of don't look back don't you understand? And as they're running for their lives and she has to turn around and... Solidified, softified, or whatever. But you know, God is saying the same thing to those who are coming in repentance. He's saying, don't look back. Don't look back on those sinful relationships. Don't look back on those sinful habits. Don't look back on those sinful thoughts. Don't look back on those sinful entertainment options. He says, you run towards me. You turn around and you run towards me. Listen, not only is God calling us to, to turn from something, But more importantly, He's calling us, and this is the essence of the Gospel, He's calling us to someone. And it's only one person. And His name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Me. Turn your back on your sins. Turn your back on all those things that will pull you away from God. And run into the arms of the Savior who stretched out His arms on the cross to save you and me. The Apostle Peter preached this message of repentance and he offers a word of hope. That's what he's saying here in verse 19. In verse 20, And that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Do you understand, at the time that Peter's preaching this, he's talking to the Jews, and they all understand that one day Messiah is coming again. And He is. Jesus is coming again. And Peter is saying, you turn to Christ if the whole nation of Israel, if the whole nation of Israel had turned to Jesus in genuine repentance, I just have to believe that God would have said, okay, let's go. Now, I don't know how the details would have worked out and how you and I would have fit in there, but I just believe that had, had the nation of Israel turned in repentance, and of course they didn't as a nation. Only a small segment of the Jews actually turned in repentance towards Jesus Christ. But He's coming again. Peter's saying to these people that are gathered around Him that day, He says in verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you will hear in all things, speaking of Christ, whatever He says to you. Moses said, Look, I'm a prophet, but I'm minor league. The main prophet, the one prophet, the true prophet of God is coming. In verse 23, And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the peoples. Verse 24, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have uh, have also foretold these days. In other words, all the prophets are pointing to Christ. In verse 25, He says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what I was telling you just earlier. And look at verse 26. And to you first, God 
having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying, now remember this lame man, this lame man that was laying here at the gate, who was helpless, who was invalid, uh, served no purpose? God raised him up. God brought him back to his original purpose. God gave him life again. And Peter's saying to an invalid nation of Jews, if you will turn back to Jesus, if you'll repent of your sins, accept Him by faith, then God will restore you. You will be who God has, has created you to be, has by the blood of His Son redeemed you to be. You will be able to function in the way that God has intended you to be. We're not going to go into chapter 4. Somebody's saying, phew. But I do want you to see in verse 4, Peter's message didn't fall on deaf ears. In the midst of that throng, though the whole nation of Israel didn't return, verse 4 says, However many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. One crippled, invalid man in the hands of one all-powerful, all-knowing, majestic, sovereign God. Things change. And I'm here today to tell you that if you're running from God and you're out of His will and you're not being productive in your life as a Christian, as a child of God, it's not too late. I don't care what you've done. You may be here and you've never chosen to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you may think, well, I've squandered all these years. Listen, let me tell you something. If God can raise up a lame, crippled man and make him productive and vibrant and worship God again, He can raise you and me up. And He can give life back to His people again. Oh, that God would restore Cornerstone to its original intent. Bring us back to who we are to be as a people of God. And empower us, not with the teachings of man, not with the product of man, not with the programs of man, but with the power of His Holy Spirit. And cause us to rise up and to stand strong and to move forward and be an army of believers witnessing for the cause of Christ and drawing people to Jesus. Oh, that God would give us life again. Amen? It's called revival.